Can you imagine running a race? What about a long race? A marathon even? Now imagine how tired you would feel after running a marathon. You might be sweating. Your feet hurt. You are short of breath and your muscles are beginning to ache. Now imagine if you had to do that every day of every week of every month. Could you do it? It's like running a marathon. Cancer treatment is like running a marathon and it's all in your head. It's a real mental game. There's an, it's an endurance activity that is very, very, very challenging. Every day, every hour, every week, every month that it goes on. It's, and it's, it's very, I felt very like I was the only one running the race despite being really well supported. I still was the only one going through it. So I had to really coach myself, I think, in a, mentally I had to get myself through it. From Rare Cancers Australia, this is Radio Rare, the podcast where we share the stories of those in and around the rare and less common cancer community. If you have listened to a few of our episodes, you may recognise that voice. It was Christine Coburn, our patient support manager, and a voice in our patient support audio reels here in our podcast. Christine is a mother of two older children, sociologist, and been a part of the team here at Rare Cancers Australia for more than two years. A reminder to our listeners that whilst you may be one of only a handful of people with your cancer here in Australia, added together, all those rare and less common cancers make up a community of tens of thousands of people here in Australia. If you or your caregiver ever need to speak to someone, our specialist cancer navigators are here for you. Reach out on 1-800-257-600 or email support at rarecancers.org.au. Helping share Christine's story is RCA's Dr. Emily Isham. Dr. Emily Isham here. Hello and welcome to our latest episode of Radio Rare. Thank you for joining us. In this interview, we're going to cover Christine's own experience with cancer and how it led her to the work she does. I think we're all going to find something so valuable in her words today. Christine has previously been a carer herself when her mum was diagnosed with cancer. About 10 years ago uh, was my first encounter with up close, I guess, with a, a cancer. My mother was diagnosed with a rare gastric cancer, a gastroesophageal junction cancer, and my sister and I took on the role of carer for her. It was a rare cancer with a very uncertain treatment pathway and a very poor prognosis. We looked after her probably for almost a year and she passed away. What I remember mostly about that period is my naivety and I often draw on the experience when I am talking to people who are either newly diagnosed or carers and how little we knew about what we were up against, how little we knew about the questions we should have asked and in fact even what we were looking at watching mum become sicker and sicker and it was it's very clear to me now what the process of stage four cancer can look like and what in fact was going on in front of our eyes but we really just had no idea at all and I often have to put myself back in that place to remember how much carers don't know and how much they are required to know 
and what a huge role it is to at that stage. I had a baby who I was breastfeeding and so juggling two young children, we moved our lives to be closer to mum and I guess we took on a dual role but my sister really took on a leading role. It's, it's I think very, very fortunate for both of us that we were both there and available to support one another. Even with somebody doing the caring with me, I can remember very tangibly how isolating and lonely and quite terrifying that that role is. And did you find uh, networks out there that they were that were able to guide you with information and support you at that time? I don't think we knew to look for them really. I, I don't think a lot of carers understand that there is a lot of carer specific support out there. If you don't know what you don't know. We got all of our support from a hospital social worker who was really incredible and it was very psychosocial support. It wasn't practical, but it was incredibly important and that relationship is definitely one that has directed my life's work. I guess that's really the first encounter that I had, a serious encounter in the cancer space. Right. So your first experience was as a carer for someone with a rare cancer, which I'm sure many of our listeners can relate to. Following Christine's experience as a carer, she herself was diagnosed with cancer. I was uh, only 35 years old and diagnosed with early breast cancer. It was obviously quite a shock, not because it was breast cancer, but because I was so young, I suppose. There is no family history, so not what we were looking for, not what I was suspecting. I had a, um, a bilateral mastectomy and a reconstruction, which was a very long uh, 11-hour procedure. Um, and that was due to the complexity of the reconstruction that I had. Um, and then I went on to have a chemotherapy regime and I was lucky enough to be able to have a um, targeted therapy for 12 months. So it was a really long, quite a protracted treatment. Although there was, I guess, a long-term certainty from my diagnosis and treatment, that doesn't change the fact that every hour and every day during that time was pretty awful. There were terrifying and heartbreaking times, most especially because I had very young children who were scared and quite clueless. They were too young, I guess, to really understand, but they were definitely frightened. And the first thing that I thought when I got my diagnosis was, I've got children. It's, it's the only thing that came to my mind were, were my kids. And, and all the way through the treatment, my husband and I communicated, mostly without words, I think, about the children and about how it was affecting them and how they were seeing me become, because of treatment, sicker and sicker, more and more fragile. You know, my, I lost my hair and I was on hormone treatment. So I, you know, went kind of puffy and I had a portacast in my chest and was very lethargic and grey, like, um, like anybody undergoing cytotoxic treatment experiences. So that was very hard for them to comprehend and very difficult to reassure them that it was, I don't know, that it looked worse than it was, I guess, but we were very mindful of their experience. It probably was the main thing that preoccupied me. In retrospect, it's very often easy to kind of glaze over the minutiae. I can imagine that in retrospect now you've kind of glaze over the, the really difficult points. Is that right? It's absolutely right. And I do glaze over it and I do gloss over it and I do, and I am a little bit trite about it. But if I really sit down and think back to the moments, they were, yeah, it's really, it's like, a, it's like running a marathon 
cancer treatment is like running a marathon and it's all in your head. It's a real mental game. There's an, it's an endurance activity that is very, very, very challenging every day, every hour, every week, every month that it goes on. It's, and it's, it's very, I felt very like I was the only one running the race despite being really well supported. I still was the only one going through it. So I had to really coach myself, I think, in a, mentally I had to get myself through it. Yeah, that's right. Do you remember, does something stand out as the hardest part of it all, whether it be practical or emotional? Do you remember what that may have been? I think it was coming towards the end of the chemotherapy regime and it's very common now that I do the work that I do that people get to a certain point and just want to wave a white flag and say, I just can't do this anymore. I can't, I cannot take another step. I cannot do this anymore. I want out. I do remember that really, really clearly. And I, I, I sought some, some mental health support at that stage. It was really, really difficult to get myself to just jump that next hurdle. Why, why do you think that is a common feeling at that point? Look, I think it's a combination of the big things and the small things. The big picture of, um, you know, survival and prognosis and the smaller everyday granular details of how damn hard it is, you know, the mouth ulcers and the bowel problems and the throwing up and it's exhausting. It's just exhausting. It would have been. You underwent a huge surgery and then chemotherapy, which knocks so many people around. At the most difficult part of the race, when you're exhausted and ready to collapse, there are often people cheering on the sidelines who give you that bit of boost and reduce the pain. I was incredibly fortunate to be surrounded by a very loving family. If there is an upside to being very young and having young children, it's that you're at a time of your life. I was at a time of my life where I was very well connected. I had a lot of great friends and my sister again stepped up and looked after me. My dad was extremely supportive and helpful. My other siblings were heartbroken and very supportive. You had a strong team. Did this change over the course of treatment? I think that touches on a different subject a little bit, which is kind of where treatment is coming to an end and the support changes. You know, I sort of refer to it as I feel like at some stage the parade passes by and, you know, all the beautiful meals that have been delivered and all the support that's been given to you and all the friendship packets and the beautiful things people do and then they you feel like you've come to the end of treatment or they feel that you've come to the end of treatment and the parade passes by and you're really left being a completely and utterly different person physically and emotionally. And then I think there's a whole new chapter begins. There's a whole special type of, um, not trauma per se, but a very confronting episode begins, I think, at that point where active treatment ends and you're perceived to be, I guess, on the mend or back to normal. And it's really, really, very rarely the case. What was happening for you when you finished your treatment? I felt really odd. Yeah, really odd. I think the um, safety of having appointments and the safety of having checkups, the routine of being under an oncologist's eye or checkups with the surgeon and infusions regularly, there's a, a normality that becomes some, you know, part of your life, which all of a sudden almost like a rug is pulled out from under you. Um, and everybody says, isn't it great? It's over. Isn't that great? And it's sort of something's over, but something else has begun in a way. It's really not as black and white from inside 
the experience. It's never black and white. It's very, it's just a different chapter. It's not over. It's not better. It's not finished. You're not cured. Um, although you may be, it, it's for, you're forever changed. As my psychologist says, you can never go back. And I guess there's a, people are willing you to just return to life as before. And that's because they want the, you know, they want it all to go away for you, but you're forever changed, of course. And I think also, I mean, given the work that we currently do, a lot of it has to do with that community. You earn a community by being diagnosed with cancer, whether you want to or not, it's still that community. And it perhaps detaches you more so from that immediate access to that community when you finish active treatment. Yeah, look, I think there's a role that people play and there's a role that a community plays and it feels, oh, now I'm talking about a collective of people, but I think the role is to nurture you and look after you in that really tough time and there's a perception that at some stage it finishes and that that role of the nurturing supportive community can kind of roll away. It's very confronting and quite isolating and I do say that for carers as well as patients, I think that once there's a perceived end of something, people kind of go on about their business. And once again, I draw that analogy, the parade passes by and it's very confronting. Christine has had a unique perspective, having personally experienced both a rare cancer and a more common cancer, and from being both a carer herself and a patient at the receiving end of treatment. Comparing the two journeys side by side, it's surprising to hear which one was the hardest. Look at the two, my own diagnosis and my mum's journey is two quite separate things, I have to say. I think, uh, if I'm honest, the journey looking after mum was harder and certainly more heartbreaking than my own journey. It was a very different seat I was sitting in and the complete lack of control you have as a carer is quite quite heartbreaking, especially yeah, of course, it's always going to be someone dear to you, but I found the carer role to be much more profound. Yeah, I think that's a really key theme that you touch on, the, the powerlessness and lack of control that carers often talk about because they can't dictate anything. The person in the seat of the diagnosis themselves can determine their interactions in a way with with their um, healthcare team and you know they can give themselves their medications and they can they're they're in that seat that driver's seat in in a sense knowing of course that cancer is an uncontrollable disease but as a carer there is even more of a level removed isn't there look absolutely and i remember feeling that i would have taken it and you know if I, I'd wished it was me, I guess, when it was my mum. And then funnily enough, years later, when I myself was diagnosed, my father said to me, I wish it was me. And I said, oh, God, I don't. I thought, I've got this. You couldn't handle this. I'm fine. So it's so funny to have seen, I guess, both sides of that coin and the um, the different being in this, the carer and the patient driver's seat are two incredibly different experiences, obviously. Mm, And in terms of treatment and outcomes, rare cancers and common cancers can differ markedly. It was always a very survivable cancer. I always was in an excellent position with my prognosis and my care. It was very different to my mum's trajectory. Very rarely did I ever feel that I wasn't going to be okay. If I knew then what I know now, which is what it looks like to not have a clear path for treatment and to not have an optimal care pathway, it's, it's 
truly incredible to not have to make those decisions. But I didn't know any different at the time. I talk to people every day now that don't have clear treatment pathways and are really quite lost. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Not having a clear treatment pathway is the norm for rare cancer patients. I once heard a doctor describing rare cancers as the ones you don't know how to treat. Coming up after the break. I think other people's experiences can sometimes make you reflect on your own life. And I know a few people have come to me and said, your experience really shocked me. And I I took a hard look at this part of my life and I've changed, made this change. And I've thought, wow, that's amazing. But I, I think, it, again, it comes down to the fact that I was quite young. I think that shocked people. Hello, this is Ailey at Rare Cancers Australia. How can I help you today? Hi, I was just wondering if you could help me with... Our specialist cancer navigators can help you with the challenges that come with a rare cancer diagnosis. Our services are free and there is no criteria for accessing support from us. We understand that every situation is unique and no two people are the same. If you have been diagnosed with a rare or less common cancer, our patient support team look forward to hearing from you. Call us on 1-800-257-600 or email support at rarecancers.org.au. Welcome back to Radio Rare. Before the break, Christine was sharing the different experiences that have shaped the direction of her work. Dr. Emily picks up the conversation discussing Christine's relationships. In terms of your relationships with people through the whole process, did you find that any relationships really changed significantly for you? I think there's a few different types of relationships I can observe. One is I sometimes would be talking to people and I speak very frankly about my experience. I've always shared to anybody that wanted to hear it because uh, being so young, I think, it was helpful to some people to know they weren't alone, but I could sometimes see the look in people's eyes going, oh no, oh no, oh no, she's going to talk about it. Oh God, please stop, please stop. And they just didn't really want to go there. And that's, that's okay. But I was like, oh, put the brakes on. This is, you've gone too far. Stop talking. The other type of friendship, I guess, for the people that came closer, who I think are very brave people because it's a pretty awful time, who, you know, really go the extra mile to lean inwards to your needs. And I guess there are people that I knew a little bit who have since told me that seeing such a young person have this experience made them realise that life is not necessarily predictable and this could happen. And a couple of people that I know took kind of career changes and, you know, made made big life decisions based on the fact that they recognise that at any time of your life, crazy things can happen and I think other people's experiences can sometimes make you reflect on your own life. And I know a few people have come to me and said, your experience really shocked me. And I I took a hard look at this part of my life and I've made this change. And I've thought, wow, that's amazing. But I, I think, it, again, it comes down to the fact that I was quite young. I think that shocked people. I think now I'm beginning to see how you really developed an interest in working within the cancer space from having that unique experience of being both a carer and patient for both rare and a more common cancer. After I had my experience with my mum, 
I had been planning to do oncology social work, which I had found to be very meaningful work. And then I was diagnosed. I went on to study social work and then changed to sociology and health management with a view still to working in the oncology space. Whilst I was having my treatment, I came across an amazing chemo nurse who, you know, given the luxury of hours and hours in an armchair and talking to people, you kind of get to know each other a little bit. She knew what I was studying and why I was studying it and what my focus was. Then uh, Kate Vines, my boss, was getting to the point with rare cancers where she desperately needed another pair of hands. She was all of patient care for many years. And she had reached out to our local community, including my chemo nurse, and said, I really need a nurse. I need a nurse to help me in patient care. And my chemo nurse said, no, you don't. I know who you need. And so the sun was shining on me that day and they got in contact and I was introduced to Kate and Richard and explained my passion for supportive care in oncology. And I, I had just finished my degree, not very long before at all. And we got along straight away. I, I loved the, the idea of what they were doing. It was serendipitous in how much it aligned to the focus that I wanted my career to have. So, so what exactly do you do? What, describe your job and how it fits with you so well. So I work in patient support, which means that we essentially have services and navigation services available for people who are diagnosed with less common cancers. So the cancers that aren't supported really well by specialist organisations who have a breast cancer nurse, for example, a prostate specialist nurse, for example, a lung nurse, there are a lot of people with cancers that are very hard to pronounce and that don't have a ribbon and they don't have optimal care pathways and they're quite lost. It's really lonely and really isolating. So we help to navigate and support people going through those, those experiences. So exactly the kind of network that your mum would have benefited from, right? She really would have benefited from that. I have to say her, her illness was really quite fast. But had she, I guess, lived longer, that the support that rare cancers provide would have been really quite specialised to her situation, yes. And have you seen positive outcomes from your job with being able to see the benefits of having Rare Cancers Australia for the people you talk to? Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm really... um, We often have people who are able to enunciate the difference in their cancer experience before and after they came to rare cancers. Just having that person who understands the challenges, who's on the end of the phone, they can call and text and we can help them to talk through decisions and, you know, those really bad days and the really great days when they have great scans and great results. We often, you know, which is really humbling, the ones that they call to update, it's it's incredible that the part of the experience that we become is is, a, is really an honour. So often it's just really lending in a listening ear. I mean, that's not just a just, is it? That's a, that's a huge component of supporting people where they're at, but also through such isolating experiences where there is not a lot of information around. I think despite some of the more technical things that we can help with, like access to medicines or um, navigating clinical trials, linking to specialist clinicians, helping people with their financial problems when they're going through a cancer experience, Really, I think a lot of the most meaningful things that we do 
do involve listening and just being in the experience and being there to listen. And doing that enormous amount of admin or information seeking, paperwork, that's a huge burden for someone who's just been diagnosed with cancer and can't even work out, you know, who's going to keep the finances flowing whilst they're off work or who's going to be able to fill out all the Centrelink forms when they're just already so bogged down in everything. That's absolutely right. A lot of people haven't needed to know any of these things before. So how on earth would they be expected to know how to do those things? I think when people find somebody like Rare Cancers Australia where we can say, we've done this before, we can walk you through it. These are your, this is your kind of best approach is that you can hear the sigh of relief. It's a, it's a very kind of mixed model of knowledge that we have, which is quite diverse because so is the rare cancer experience diverse. And that's not it, is it? You help their voices be heard. You help them be advocated for in a in a wider space and link people up in higher levels, don't you? Absolutely. We're obviously quite well known or very well known in the advocacy space, the work that Richard has done over the years for rare and less common cancers. I like to think of the patient support and the advocacy as kind of two halves of the, of the same apple and the apple is looking after the patient. We do have people coming to us who, you know, they need to talk and they need help with finance or Centrelink or medicines, but they also want to know what is someone doing about this? You know, there's very much a an awareness that there's a systemic problem that they shouldn't even have been in this position in the first place. So whilst we are there to listen and we're there to help with the more granular details, they also want to know who on a larger scale is doing something about this. And it's wonderful to be able to share the the work that we are doing and to assure them that we are in fact doing something about it. So I know this is very variable, but Say a patient, say someone's just been diagnosed with something that there is no information about and their expert, their their doctor is trying to contact some experts to work out where to next and they find your phone number and they give you a call. What can they expect from that point? What what do they get when they call up rare cancers? So we do a lot of talking, a lot of fact-finding on where they are at the moment and what their main concerns are. We're very mindful to not leap in with a um, you know ready-to-go list of things that you should be doing. We'd rather assess what the concerns are for the person and for their family and that very much leads how we navigate them. What we might think is the first stop, you know, the first priority may not be on the radar of the patient or the carer at all. So we go through where they are, how they're feeling about it, what their main concerns are and navigate from there. It really needs to be driven by what the concerns are for the family and for the patient and not by what we think we should be doing. It's a, I guess it's a social work model and it's very, very person-centred. And you seem so well positioned and I suppose perfectly experienced for that role because you've had that depth of experience yourself as a carer but also at the receiving end of treatment? Uh, Yes and no, I think so. I mean, I feel like I can empathise with a a patient journey to a point and certainly a carer journey, but everyone's experience is very, very different, very different and why it's really important not to assume what people's priorities are. It's very important and it's a real badge of honour for rare cancers that we do offer a very personalised service, you know, there aren't any checklists or programs that people have to slot into. It's every person gets personal navigation and 
you know, if we don't know, we'll find out. We really are constantly learning. We're constantly trying to meet the needs of what's concerning the patient and the carer. And I wouldn't assume that my journey is the same as anybody else's. And do you think this current climate with the pandemic, has it changed the way you think about what our patients are going through or how they're interacting with us at all? Look, I think that the urgency of needs changed overnight. I think that, you know, what were needs became luxuries in a lot of ways. And I think a hierarchy of needs for each person kind of maybe did a little bit of rearranging. But I I hope that the flexibility of life as we've just we're living through at the moment, you know, allied health being available over telehealth, for example, and new MBS numbers being created. And there's been great agility and great flexibility at this time. And I feel like I hope that that's a model for what really can be achieved. And we can stop talking about all the things that aren't possible in healthcare. We really, I think, need to be more flexible and more agile and yeah, I I'm just always hope that the patient voice gets a more authentic voice at the table. It still requires a lot of work. And I think it's also important to note that whilst so many things have shut down over this pandemic, we're still available. We're still at the other end of the phone. There are still support groups that we run and other organisations run. GPs are still open, whether they do it face-to-face or over telehealth. Allied health and psychologists are still available and cancer clinics and oncologists are still available. They might be by a different method, but they're still there. And it's really important that we continue supporting, reaching out to each other, but also seeking treatment or seeking expert help if we have concerns. That's absolutely right, Emily. We've always been here for people during this pandemic and, you know, been on a very steep learning curve to make sure that we can meet the ever-changing needs of the people that we support. We have been linked into other NGOs and other cancer support organisations and trying to work together to have a united approach to making sure that cancer care remains as uninterrupted as possible. It remains to be seen, I guess, whether that has been the case or not. But I feel like there's been a really good effort to have a united energy in helping to make sure that cancer patients have felt supported during this extraordinary time. And in some ways, it's almost a little bit better moulded towards the person with cancer who might be in home isolation themselves because they're immunosuppressed or someone who can't access clinic because they're living further away and they, they couldn't get there previously as, as frequently as they needed to. But now there is telehealth set up and people are more, uh, specialists are more happy to get involved with those kind of appointments. I think there are absolutely positives that we can take away from this, and that is, you know, telehealth is a fantastic example. I think that a lot of, as you say, cancer patients and families are used to living a not very normal life, you know, staying isolated and not being able to do certain things or taking certain precautions. And as somebody I heard say recently, the acknowledgement that life isn't always as you'd planned is not news to anybody with cancer. So, you know, in some ways, I guess there may have been a bit of resilience there for people already dealing with these huge challenges. The world is forever changed. I think the way we are is forever changed and hopefully there will be positives for a cancer experience in, in there somewhere. That's so true. Some of the changes that we've gone through are beneficial and we can only hope that they'll persist. Just to finish today, I'd like to know if and how your perspective has been shaped by your experiences. Yeah, 
It's a funny thing to say, but I do feel that my own experience, speaking very broadly, gave me more than I lost. I think it it gave me clarity on my life's work, definitely gave me deep empathy. I got clarity on, I guess, a human condition from a certain perspective. And I feel, although it was very difficult for the people around me to go through it, I am a better person now and I am a more complete person and I'm able to do the work that I do because of it. Yeah, that's incredible. So how? what about your husband and kids? How are they going now? It's difficult to say how it's affected my children. I must say that for a couple of years after my own illness, if I had to go to the doctor, I had to be very specific about why I was going to the doctor. (laughs) I had to say I was just going because I have a sore throat or, you know, whatever the case may be. They didn't, they got a kind of a um, deer in headlights look about them when I said I had to go to the doctor. And my husband, look, I think it's a bit of a, a memory, but he's always a bit wary and you still have to be mindful. The experience doesn't go away. Recurrence for a couple of years sits right on your shoulder. Of course it does. But generally speaking, I feel that we're clear of it. And again, I just feel like my experience is part of my toolkit and not, it, it doesn't own me. It doesn't define who I am now. Such a powerful note to end on. Your experience has not been a wholly positive thing, but it has undoubtedly contributed to the person you are today and to the work you feel you are meant to do. It adds so much dimension to that work. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today and give such an incredible insight into your experiences and the work that you do, Christine. Thank you too to our listeners this week. We will have scenes from our next episode of Radio Rare after these words from our patient support team. Catch you next time. Our patient support team know that a rare cancer journey is different. We understand it can be hard to find good information, difficult to connect with others in a similar situation, and that you might need someone to chat to about everything that's going on. We are here to listen. We understand rare and you are not alone. Contact our patient support team on 1800 257 600. Next time on Radio Rare, Dr. Emily will speak with University of Melbourne Genomics Group leader, Dr. Richard Tothell. Dr. Tothell shares information and treatment options for neuroendocrine tumours, also known as NETS, and cancer of unknown primary. Genomics is, as the name suggests, in my, uh, the name of my laboratory, the Rare Disease Oncogenomics Laboratory. We use DNA technologies to understand cancer, what is driving these cancers, what is the history of that cancer, what potentially can we treat a patient with based on the changes in DNA or the changes in the activity of a gene in the tumour cells. Radio Rare is produced in-house at Rare Cancers Australia and is hosted by Dr Emily Isham and me, James Matthews. Thank you to this episode's guest, Rare Cancers Australia Patient Support Manager, Christine Coben. The show is mixed by Alexander Smith, narrative writing by Ailey McMaster, reporting by Dr. Emily Isham, and we are edited by Christine Coben and myself. Our episode music is from Audioblocks. You can listen to all of our episodes for free on our website, and you can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Simply search rare cancers australia and click the subscribe 
or follow button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to keep up to date with written stories from patients, carers, and information regarding rare cancers. Thank you for listening. We will be back shortly with our next episode. Bye for now.